Downloads of this show are available on Podomatic.com and the Podomatic mobile app. You are listening to Troubadours and Tours with E.W. Conundrum Demure on Radio Free Brooklyn. Welcome to episode 286 of Troubadours and Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, the first of autumn 2018, we feature a conversation with authors Tracy Medford Rosso and Kevin Coughlin. These guys are friends and have uh, met through some interesting circumstances and wrote a great book, a book that has received high praise and has been very well read. We talked to them about how they met in Manhattan and about Kevin's miraculous recovery from being blind, having sight, going blind, and regaining his sight, and the struggles that occurred through that, and also the, I guess, wisdom and insight that was gained as well. A fascinating conversation with Tracy Medford Rosso and Kevin Coughlin today on the program. We also have an EW essay titled Judging, an Uncle Cesare essay by our associate producer, Dr. Michael Pavis, titled Our Town, and a poem called The Lamp Factory. And as is always the case, all of this will be infused, imbued with the wonderful energy of several great tunes. It's so nice to have you with us. Let's get to it. Episode 286 of Troubadours and Tours. Everyone you know 
everything you see Yes, you can indicate anything you see Judging. Does one's experiences and behavior during their senior year in high school and the subsequent years of response to it say much about an individual's character? I think I know what most of you would say. It is indeed a difficult struggle trying to break free of those post-adolescent pre-responsible adult years, assuming one is even interested in doing as much. Nonetheless, we become partners and parents, colleagues and collaborators, cogs and wrenches, divas and dregs. We wax poetic and seek the prophetic. Sometimes, too, the mundane in the moment is what many feel. A sense that this can't be all there is. Is this the real? I wonder about those who sense they are something special, those who believe and train to be the arbiters of justice. Do they not need to abide by the mores of human society in their minds? Is it a sociopathic informed drive that propels them? Us and them. The mundane who seek love and foster thoughtful kindness. And the powerful personalities pulling the levers in synchronized association set the rhythm and beats of human community. Do you remember high school? Been gone for so long, I had to be so strong. Sometimes I find just don't know which way to go. Excuse me. 
Hello, Kevin and Tracy. Is that you? That's us. It's so nice to have you on the program. And uh, before we get started, let me give a little background information to our listeners. We have Kevin Coughlin, who has appeared on numerous radio and TV shows. He inspired a CNN story chronicling his experience living as a blind person in New York City, which was instrumental in establishing its first blind advocacy program. His story, Blind Injustice, was featured on the CBS Evening News. He lives in New York City with his beloved dog. We're also going to talk about his book, Unblinded, One Man's Courageous Journey Through Darkness to Sight. And uh, this is also done with Tracy. Tracy Medford Rosso is an award-winning, best-selling author. She is a partner in the New York City law firm Richardson and Rosso and is the founder of the College Education Milestone Foundation. Tracy resides in New York with her family. So again, Tracy and Kevin, it's wonderful to have you on Troubadours and Rock on Tours. Tracy, I, I'm sorry if I'm pronouncing your last name incorrectly. I, I always make them sound Italian or something. No, that's good. You got it. <laughs> Excellent. So let, let's, start, let's start by looking at um, how you, Tracy, and uh, Kevin got together. Why don't you explain the circumstances of, of your meeting and how that led to your writing this book? So uh, it was uh, happened to be Easter morning, 2016, and my husband came bursting through our apartment door here in New York City. He had been out walking the two dogs, and he was shouting <laughs> as he entered the apartment, you know that blind guy in the neighborhood? <laughs> and I, I did. You know, I mean, I don't, didn't know his name at the time, but everybody sort of knew. Knew you know, of me. Knew of, <laughs> knew of him because 
you know, we don't, there's two, there is actually, well now there's only one because Kevin's no longer blind, but there were two blind men in the neighborhood. Um, and it, it, so you, you see them walking with their guide dogs and their canes. And so I, I knew who he was talking about because Kevin's tall and blonde and, and the other man is, is, is not. So I knew he, who, he, who he meant. So I said, yeah, I said, I know who you're talking about. And he goes, well, he's not blind anymore. And I said, oh, wow, that's just great. And it was Easter morning, and I thought, that's a nice Easter story, you know, a man who got his sight back. And then Joel just uh, explained quickly that, you know, he had been blind for almost 20 years due to his rare genetic disorder that he didn't know that he was carrying. And then he, in, in, in August of 2013, he woke up in the middle of the night, and he saw for the first time, a flash of light in his medicine cabinet mirror in his bathroom. And from that point on, his, light, his sight just continued to return. So about a week goes by, and then Joel comes back another time from walking dogs. He'd run into Kevin a second time, and this time Kevin had said that he was looking for someone to write his story. And I had just written a book and so knew a little bit about you know writing a story and getting it published, and I said that I... I said that I would be honored to do it. Wow. It's, it's amazing to me. Do you guys still live in the same neighborhood? Yeah, we just live two blocks away. Oh, that's excellent. So today you just kind of got went for a walk, got together at one of your apartments to do the interview. That's exactly yeah. what we did. <laughs> that's we're, we're in this place. That's we're fantastic. We're at the scene of the crime. Yeah. This is where we met for, for, for a year while Kevin told me a story and I tried to craft it into a book for him. That's that's amazing, and um, I, I mean the whole journey, Kevin. Uh, you know, it, let's let's go to you for a bit. Okay. I, I know you weren't born blind. You had a pretty active life uh, before you lost your sight, and uh, then all of a sudden, your 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 start you started to lose vision. Explain to us how that occurred, and then you went through a period of darkness, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, at age 36, one day, and, and I had 20-20 vision at the time. And not only did I have 20-20 vision, I was a thoroughly visual person. I, my hobby had been photography from the time I was 14 years old. And I loved photographing buildings and, and flowers. And I was an art lover. And I went to museums and galleries and all of that. So one day I was having difficulty reading the Saturday New York Times. The next day I couldn't see anything in the main section of the, the paper. By the time I got to my first uh, doctor uh, on Tuesday, um, I was couldn't see anything, you know, on the on the eye chart and all the different things. And by the time I got to my second doctor, I had already lost all of my central vision, which is the most you know, important vision that one has. So most of our vision um, is peripheral, but 20% um, of our vision is central and that's the most, you know, clear and clarity, you know, and that's what I had lost already in that quick amount of time. So, um, you know, as you can imagine, it's, it's devastating. I, you know, the words, it's hard to even put into words how devastating it was. So uh, it just, you know, it, 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 the, I was, totally blind for for 16 years and then uh you know slowly as, as tracy alluded to in 2013 i saw a reflection of light on a medicine cabinet mirror and this is after doctor after doctor over the years told me that there was no chance of my sight coming back because the scientific community feels that 
when one has optic nerve damage that it's irreversible. So I never had any hope of my sight coming back. And then, so when I first saw this reflection of light, I really thought I was dreaming. I didn't believe it until the next night. I not only saw the same reflection, but I could, I could see a fuzzy outline of a print I have on the bathroom wall. So that's, that's, that's basically the, you know, the, the reader's digest version of the story. Yeah. <laughs> and, and when that happened initially, uh, who did you turn to, for the, you know, I guess, support? Initially, I turned to the bottle, which wasn't wasn't the best support. But I clearly had a problem with alcohol before this happened. So I went I went from being an evening drinker to take the edge off to drinking 24-7 so I wouldn't feel anything. So ironically, in a very odd way, for a time, alcohol saved me because it allowed me for nearly three years, uh, to a little over three years actually, to just face the blindness intellectually. And just facing the blindness intellectually, so like whenever the, the feelings of loss or pain or anger would come up, I would just drink more vodka. So I would hold them off and because of that, I was, was able to quickly do all the logistical stuff learn how to use a cane, learn how to use computer software, and get a dog, because I wasn't letting any of the feelings come in. And uh, were you a fun person to be around? <laughs> I, I was uh, not fun at all. I mean, there was, I mean, just, I had so much anger, but I didn't, I didn't have access to the anger, but people would tell me, oh, you're so, you're so crazy angry, and you have so much rage, but I, I totally denied it, but I, I, I was angry at anything. So like I would be walking on the street and I would be like seething that I couldn't see the buildings that I loved as I walked by or I couldn't see flowers or I couldn't see trees or then I would be in a conversation with a friend and they would mention a movie and I'd be like, how they dare they mention something visual or someone would mention an art exhibit and I'd be like, how dare that, you know, so it was the anger was just, you know, just off the off the charts. And we're talking uh, about this occurring. What what uh, what decades are we talking about? Now, what years? Um, the blindness occurred in 1997. 1997, and then just about 16 years from there, it continued uh, uh, totally and and uh, partially a few years after that. So, New York City was it difficult to be in New York City without uh, sight? Interestingly enough, the logistics were remarkably easy. I was just. All of that, for some reason, I was able I was able to deal with actually pretty, you know, pretty remarkably well. the The hardest thing about the blindness is the isolation of not having access to nonverbal communication. So, not having access to smiles and waves and nods, and that is the biggest handicap. And I, although I use the word handicap, I hate that word. I mean, it's a it's such a damaging you know, negative word. I hate that word, but, but that's the biggest, uh, obstacle, not having access. And because of that, people are so used to first making eye contact with someone before they have a conversation. So they can't understand that you, all you have to do is open your mouth. You don't have to first, you know, look at someone and smile. You can talk to someone. So it's very isolating to, to not have access to those nonverbal cues. Now, uh, just to give people a sense of exactly where you are, especially those who know New York, we have a lot of uh, listeners in New York City. What where, what borough are you guys in? Uh, we're in Manhattan in a neighborhood called Murray Hill, which um, 
the closest landmarks would be Grand Central Terminal and the Chrysler Building. Okay, thank you for that. And uh, when you talk about the term handicapped, I, rem I have a friend who is an advocate for, uh, he, he works at a, a SIL, Center for Independent Living. Um, yeah. And uh, he always said to me he hates the term handicap as well because it comes from the idea of a person with a cap in hand who's begging. And, uh, yeah. and, and uh, that's not the right context. As well as I think of it as you know, damaged and broken. It's just a terrible, you know, in the, fir the first time I heard it. So I had, I had lost my vision probably less than a month. And I was out on Long Island visiting, visiting my mom and dad. And my, I was going to the gross grocery shopping with my mom. And we'd pull into the, 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 the shopping center. And my mom, like, says very loudly, because of you and your dad, I've got a handicap uh, sticker now that I can put on the mirror and we can get up really close. I was like, I was like, she's talking about me now. It was just, I was so appalled that she was, you know, calling both my dad and I handicapped. But it was, that was the first time I really heard anyone, you know, call me that. And it was my own mother. It was, it was terrible. But, but she, she didn't understand, you know, what she, she thought it was just another word, you know. Right. Of course. She wasn't sensitive about it. Um, now let me let me ask you a, a couple of things. The book, you want to talk a bit about the book again? The book's title, because this is an endeavor that both of you guys uh, have in common and brought you yeah. together. Unblinded, one man's courageous journey through darkness to sight. So you guys co-wrote this. Yes. We did. And uh, do you want to talk about the book at all? Why did you write it, and what you know? What do you hope it will? it will communicate to folks. I, d I just want to say one interesting thing was that, so when, when Tracy and I first started meeting those first couple of times, we had this immediate bond and connection. And I guess we, we didn't understand what it was about, but the second time we were meeting, I think Tracy knew the focus of the book before I did. So when she told me that she was considering the title Unblinded, initially I hated it because I just thought of it liter as in literal terms. And I said, oh, that's too literal. You know, we got to think of something better than that. M not realizing that she was thinking a much, multi much more multi-layered definition of Unblinded. She was thinking how my internally I became unblinded. So what she wasn't just talking about my eyes and my vision, but she was talking about how my soul and my, you know, my, my personal, you know, journey, how I became unblinded. And that was, that was a, that's a major part of the book as well, the internal journey. And I guess that has a lot to do with the, the your, your spiritual, um, psychological, emotional state. All of that, as well as the process of getting over that anger that, that, that we were speaking about earlier. And just, it was a long journey through meditation and prayer and affirmations and, you know, sobriety and so, so many things. And all, all of those things are covered in the, in the book. And that's why the book, to me, blindness, although the details of the story revolve around sight and uh, having sight and lack of sight, to me, blindness is a bit player in the book. To me, the book is about facing any life-altering event and going forward and being 
open to learning from loss. Okay, great. Great. Tracy, you have anything to add? Well, I think um, the one thing I would like to add is that working with Kevin, it, it became very quickly apparent to me that I was witnessing and chronicling not only a physical miracle, because Kevin is the only known person in the world who has ever become, who has ever had their vision, has ever regained their vision after having lost it due to Libras. But I was also witnessing a human being, as Kevin said, who had become unblind in his soul. And it tugged at me in a way that was very frightening and compelling at the same time, because here I am with, with, you know, with, with my site, with my, with my job, you know, with my accoutrements of life. And then there's Kevin sitting next to me who lost everything. And it made me really start to look inside myself and, the process of getting to know Kevin and writing his story was so profoundly enlightening in my own in my own journey that I don't know if there's any other single thing that has had the same impact on me as meeting Kevin and putting his story into into the form of a book. Wow. Wow. That's pretty profound. Yeah, when two people are get together and and through their humanity get a better sense of what life is all about. It is an amazing experience. And you guys have obviously shared that. And oftentimes we would connect on such a deep level that we would realize we had the same thoughts. We would email each other and one person would say so something and the other person would say, oh, I was thinking that same thing. So that's how you know, odd it is or, or how, you know, interesting it is. Yeah. And, and you guys, from the book, you, uh, through maybe working on the book, did you realize uh, there, there was advocacy that needed to be done? I mean, didn't a group... Uh, come out of your experience, Kevin? Um, the advocacy that I did was, was much earlier. And um, it was, you know, when I was completely blind and it was, it was for access for guide dogs, but it, so it was maybe, you know, 10 years or so, bef you know, before the, the, my sight started to come back, but it's nonetheless, it's, it's a, it's, it's, it's covered in the, in the book as well. Yeah. I remember reading a bit about it and uh, that, that's a pretty major achievement for New York city uh, and all the folks who, who also experience uh, the challenge of getting around without sight. So uh, did, did you, after writing the book and during the period of time when you were trying to acclimate, uh, while you were blind, did you uh, have you gotten a lot of feedback? Did you get a lot of response? Uh, people sharing their stories, people, um, you know, coming to you and, and and trying to connect. Initially, when um, when we before the book was was published, I had some 
some media coverage when we were actually trying to land a publisher. This was probably, what was that, a year before we published the book? When, when did we have the McGee Yeah, I think short? it was maybe, yeah, maybe, maybe about a year. Yeah. A year before. So we had um, a local uh, news story that actually went viral and it was on, it was on the show inside edition and then it then it was on the MSN's webpage so so when that happened uh, people contacted me who had the same condition Lieber's hereditary optic neuropathy from Germany um from uh from France uh, Australia from Australia Florida you know lots of people who just kind of wanted to know what cuz because part of my healing was nutritional as well. So they wanted to know what I did nutritionally and how I changed my diet and what things that they might incorporate into their diet to, uh, to perhaps, you know, help their healing as well. Right. I mean, you were, you were a ray of hope for all those folks. You are listening to Troubadours and Tours with E.W. Conundrum Demure on Radio Free Brooklyn. Yeah, and it was it was it was really wonderful and, and affirming to to talk to them and to just be able to to pr- provide some hope. So, I mean, as Tracy mentioned, you're a physical miracle. Uh, how 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 do you think this happened? How how did you lose and then regain your sight? Yeah. Um, I don't I don't choose to find one answer. You know that it's that it's totally a miraculous thing, that that it's totally a God thing, or it's totally a nutritional thing, or it's totally a prayer and meditation thing. I think it's a combination of those things, but it's nonetheless extraordinary. So when I saw that first, uh, those first uh, shadows and reflection of light, I did research online. And if you're wondering, there's a, I use a computer and there's a, there's a software called JAWS, which is a screen reader, which reads the text back to you. So I did research and found out that the only things that were known to help nerve regeneration, there was one study in the UK of, uh, uh, people uh, taking a diet rich in antioxidants. So that was the only thing I could find about nerve regeneration. So I just kind of, you know, grabbed onto that and started just eating a diet, plant-based diet, just, uh, you know, replete with antioxidants. And I feel that really sped up my, uh, my, uh, my healing. And uh, so it was what you ingested to a certain extent, but meditation you mentioned earlier and and uh, prayer. I, I'm I personally I, I'm not a very religious man, but uh, I'm sure there are a lot of listeners out there who are, and this to them I'm sure would directly be connected in large part to a higher power uh, and prayer. And then there are other folks who do believe in nutrition and who believe in meditation as a power in and of itself. How, how much of the meditation helped you, even if it wasn't to bring back your sight, just to keep you from going off the deep end? Oh, it, it, it was hugely instrumental in my journey. Um, I probably started meditating shortly after I got sober. And initially, I couldn't. So so when I lost my vision, it's it's not as though your, your hearing becomes more acute, but it becomes so much more focused. And as a result of that, you hear everything. So like all of the normal things that that the unpleasant stuff that people tune out. So like the car alarms and the 
fire engines. You hear everything. So it's so hard in New York City to find quiet. So because of that, I started getting up at 4 a.m. because 4 to 7 was the only quiet time in New York City. So for the first couple of months, all I could do would be to say a couple of prayers and enjoy the quiet. Then ultimately, I, you know, found some guided meditation tapes and they didn't really work for me. I just found them annoying. And then several people told me about Jack Cornfield, who's this great meditation uh, teacher, a former monk. And I started listening to his lectures and I just connected with his kind of no nonsense approach. And that's how I ultimately learned to meditate. And uh, I, I meditate daily and it's, it's been so impactful to me. And do you, do you um do you just breathe breathing exercises or do you do the traditional uh mouthing of certain sounds uh I don't do the chant so it's it's breathing exercises or sometimes I just do silent I do affirmations to myself you know affirmations about something I want in my life or something I want to you know change in my life so for instance when I talked about having all the the anger um, a friend had said to me that I just, you know, I, I said that I was open and approachable, but he said like your body language is like, you know, anything but approachable. So the first affirmations I started to do when I was learning to meditate was I am open and approachable. I am not my blindness. And I started doing those and I just had, you know, pretty, you know, pretty immediate results with doing those affirmations while I was, was meditating. And other times, I, th I think people don't realize that a meditation doesn't have to be this formal yogi-like thing. So sometimes, if I'm walking my dog now, his name is Elias, he's a black lab, and I'm letting him sniff whatever he wants to sniff and everywhere he wants to sniff, as, sniff, as long as it's not about me, that could be a meditation. As long as it's about someone else, then it's, it's not, you know, so that's... There, there are other people can swim and it's a meditation. There are other people can, you know, look at the ocean. So I think there are other ways that it doesn't have to be a formal meditation. Excellent. I agree with you. I meditate to a certain extent myself. Uh, now, we, we're almost out of time, believe it or not. I want to uh, understand what you folks are doing now. What's up next? Well, we're trying to get... A film agent <laughs> and it is proving very difficult to, to do that but that's we're spending a lot of time trying to get a film agent so that we can maybe get a movie deal um, we, 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 we are very fortunate that we do have a national bestseller and that is is very helpful but um, we are we are both of us working on yeah. on, on doing that and some national TV coverage as well, just to get you know further publicity. And if anybody listening wants to reach out and contact you to learn more about the story, to maybe work with you on a project, how would they do that? Well, our website has direct in our boat. We each have a website, and there's direct access to our emails through that. Uh, Kevin's website is Kevin Coughlin Unblinded dot com. And mine is just my name, TracyMedfordRosso.com. In the back of the book, those, those websites are there. So for anybody who happens to have a copy, it, 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 has, it has sold a lot of copies. So a lot of people might have one or know of one. And you can get one in, in most libraries now in, in the country have one. So you 
go check that out too in your local library. But that that would be the easiest way just to try and remember our names and then go onto the websites and then there's a direct connect to our email. So it would come so Kevin Coughlin on blinded.com or Tracy Medford Rosso.com. And also, if, any, if anyone's li- looking for a, a, a great public speaker, I, I am open and, you know, amenable to that as well, because it's just an amazing, positive, uplifting story. Yeah, and I apologize for saying your name incorrectly, Kevin. I was saying Coughlin. You should have corrected It's totally me. fine. It's just the, the Irish pronunciation is Coughlin, but, you know, Coughlin is the Americanized version. Right. That's fine. Uh, yeah, exactly. Well, uh, the, the spelling, uh, I, I will spell the names too for folks listening. Medford is M-E-D-F-O-R-D and Rosso is R-O-S-O-W and Coughlin is C-O-U-G-H-L-I-N. Now, let's send the folks off listening with some some insight, some words of uh, encouragement. Just what, whatever it is you have in, in your life, uh, whatever struggle, whatever challenge you're facing, you can, you can get through it. I think oftentimes people think that they can't. And I was the same way till one day I was walking on the street and a stranger told me I was strong. I had no knowledge that I was strong. And I think people need to know that they are strong as well and that they can face whatever challenge they, they are facing. Very well said. Kevin Coughlin and Tracy Medford-Rosso, thank you so much for being on Troubadours and Rock On Tours, and I look forward to seeing the film in major theaters soon. <laughs> thank thank you. you. Thank you. Take care. Take care. Bye. Thanks a lot. Walking, tumbling down 
beautiful morning, the rancher Curly sings at the beginning of Rodgers and Hammerstein's musical, Oklahoma. How often I've heard those lyrics. They've always been with me, from a high school production I saw when I was in grade school, to the 1955 movie that played on TVs with rabbit ears, cable, and eventually Turner Classic Movies. As I aged, I took the show, and Rogers and Hammerstein, for granted. I condescended to them, thought they were corny, dated, embalmed. A cast recording of the 1998 Trevor Nunn production of Oklahoma, with Hugh Jackman as Curly, changed my mind. It was a revelation. I rediscovered the genius and the darkness of that show. And then I listened to the other shows, particularly relishing Hammerstein's lyrics, and have been rediscovering them ever since. Oklahoma hadn't changed. Nunn's production helped me put aside my prejudices long enough to see and hear clearly and anew. I've enjoyed the same kind of rediscovery with other sometimes maligned and dusty pieces of Americana. The drawings of Norman Rockwell, for example. And especially Our Town, Thornton Wilder's 1938 play about life and death in early 20th century Grover's Corners, New Hampshire. Our Town is almost inescapable. There are numerous high school, community theater, and professional productions every year. You've seen it, read it, or performed in it. In my high school production, I was Professor Willard, the pedant who doles out demographic and historical facts about the town before being ushered off stage by the time-conscious stage manager. I had white powder in my hair, and my braces glinted in the stage lights. I had my moment in the spotlight, and then hung around backstage, joking with friends, lusting after unattainable female castmates, and waiting to join the dead townsfolk on the folding chairs of the simple cemetery set in Act Three. The play is so ubiquitous that I got sick of it. I forgot how great it is. I thought it was corny, dated, embalmed, a musty artifact of another era. Its omnipresence, it popped up every school year as often as high school productions of Oklahoma decades ago, and high school productions of Les Mis now, 
obscured its quality, at least for me. And then I saw a reading of Our Town at a summer theater festival, and later a professional production at the same festival. The set design departed from Wilder's instructions. Rather than an almost bare stage, the back wall was piled high with dozens of wooden chairs. Campbell Scott played the stage manager, and a young, well, she's still young, Brie Larson played Emily. In the scene in which Emily falls in love with George, I thought I could spot the exact moment she fell. It was a beautiful, thrilling production directed by Nicholas Martin. And then I saw a community theater production. And then I reread the play. And I catch more productions whenever I can. The latest Emily gave one of the most intense performances I've seen of the character. Heartbreaking as she takes her final leave of the world at the end of Act Three. I'm sure I'll see the show again and again before I take my own final leave. In Act Three, many of the characters from the first two acts are dead. We learn their fate in Act One, so it's not a surprise to see some of them in the cemetery. One of my favorite characters in the play is Simon Stimson, the bitter, alcoholic choir master. We've seen him berating his choir and stumbling home drunk in Act One. In Act Three, Simon, still bitter, presents the cynical view of human life. That's what it was like to be alive, to spend and waste time as if you had a million years, to be always at the mercy of one self-centered passion or another, ignorance and blindness. That ain't the whole truth, and you know it, Mrs. Gibbs, Emily's mother-in-law responds. Not the whole truth, but Simon got his say. Emily, who dies in childbirth, is granted the ability to live, relive one moment in her life. Her guide to the world of the dead, Mrs. Gibbs, warns her against going back. Emily picks her eleventh birthday, and at one point in the scene, she can no longer suffer the pain of watching her family obliviously unconsciously living in time, as humans do. Do human beings ever realize life while they live it? Every, every minute, she asks. At the end of the play, Emily says goodbye to the world and its mundane objects and experiences. Goodbye to clocks ticking and food and coffee and new iron dresses and hot baths and sleeping and waking up. I think of Emily and Mrs. Gibbs and Simon Stimson and the dead townsfolk when I visit my mother's grave. It's in a real cemetery, of course, not a stage. There are headstones, not folding chairs. And the dead here are really dead most of them long gone in this section of the cemetery. Did they ever realize life while they lived it, I wonder?
The Lamp Factory, a cavernous labyrinth, three floors, wide and light bulbs luminous create so many dimensions inside these four or so that set the contextual mirage we creatures daily roam within. I was there to pick up a sconce that my uncle Pasquale had fixed for me and made ready the day before his 82nd birthday. Bon compliano, zio. Episode 286 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. 
I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, writers and friends, Tracy Medford, Rosso, and Kevin Coughlin. I'd like to thank our associate producer and resident essayist, Dr. Michael Pavis, a.k.a. Uncle Cesare, and these musical artists, Django Reinhardt, Stefan Grappelli, The Beatles, Amy Helm, Jill Sobole, Steve Forbert, The Suffers, and, of course, Brantford Marsalis and Terrence Blanchard, too. Thank you so much for listening. Until next week, let's enjoy this one. Take care. <laughs>